Hello, it's a joy to be with you uh, and to be able to open up the scriptures and take a look at God's word. Uh, if you're new, thanks for joining us. My name is Ryan Doucette and I'm the pastor of Youth and Communities here at 26 West Church. Uh, we're continuing on in our series, The Way of Jesus, looking at perhaps the most important passage in all of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, last week, Jake, our director of youth, walked us through Jesus's teaching on fasting. And if you missed it, it's a definitely worth going back and reviewing. Uh, but I think he pulled out a really important point that I wanted to start with today. Uh, something that I think will help us in looking at the passage that we have today. Jake pointed out that the three spiritual disciplines that Jesus teaches on in chapter six, giving, prayer, and fasting, are really grounded in verse one of chapter six, which says this, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, Jake suggested that Jesus was leading us to see how practicing these spiritual disciplines really starts with our heart, uh, our true inner motivation. And I think that's super helpful today because honestly, if you think about uh, all that we've studied in the Sermon on the Mount so far, there's this undercurrent for much of what Jesus is teaching that relies upon how we view these things in our heart. Uh, we've covered anger and lust and marriage, oaths, revenge, loving our enemies, and then giving prayer and fasting. And with each of these issues, I think Jesus has taken a similar approach. How does this play out in our heart? I think recognizing this framework will really help us as we continue on today. So go ahead, open your Bible uh, to Matthew chapter six. It's a long passage, so stay with me. We'll start reading in verse 19. It says, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. 
but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> so let's start uh, by asking what it really means to store up treasures on earth. I don't know about you, but for whatever reason, when I first started studying this text and, and digging in, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was piggy banks. <laughs> Uh, we live in a culture uh, where it's tradition to give uh, kids at a very young age a piggy bank to put the loose change in. Uh, we have them in our house. Grandma and Grandpa always give our girls some change to throw in the piggy bank. In fact, I looked this up today. Uh, piggy banks can be traced back as far as the 12th century. So this is a long lasting practice. And I wanted to take issue with that based on the text. Uh, start with storing up treasure at a really early age, right? But from piggy banks to savings accounts to IRAs to 401ks, like are these bad things? Is Jesus in this text condemning piggy banks? Uh, I don't think so. A friend and mentor actually pointed out to me that storing up treasures on earth can actually be wise. Uh, in fact, there are many instances where the Bible says so. Uh, take, for example, Proverbs 24, verse three through four. It says this, by wisdom, a house is built and through understanding it is established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. Seems pretty clear to me. And, you know, there are many more scriptures that endorse storing up treasures in that way. Uh, so I think without really digging into what Jesus is saying, what his words actually mean, it's possible for us to just look here at the two verses I've shown you and say, gosh, doesn't the Bible sort of contradict itself? Um, Scott McKnight, in his commentary for the Sermon on the Mount, provides what I think is a really helpful explanation to clear this up. Uh, he says this, he says, what is meant by storing up treasures is the accumulation of things as a focus of joy. It refers to the spirit of acquisitiveness or the desire to acquire. <laughs> How about that for a, a phrase or a catch saying, the desire to acquire. I think it seems that Jesus is not attacking the action itself, storing up treasures, uh, but rather it's motivation behind it. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the treasure is not the issue, the heart is, but now what does that mean? Uh, the word here in the Greek, heart, is cardia, uh, kind of like where we get our word for cardiac, uh, but it never refers to the literal body part. Michael Wilkins, author of the NIV, NIV application commentary on Matthew says this, the heart represents the core of a person's being, the real inner person, the causative source of a person's spiritual, emotional, and psychological life. What a person values is driven by the nature of a person's heart. So it's not even just something you love, but it's spiritual, emotional, psychological. It's something that's much more all-encompassing inside of us. And that's why I think Jesus, as he gets into this metaphor that can be kind of tricky to understand, this metaphor of the eye, I think it actually works really well. Uh, Jesus is simply continuing this theme of treasure by addressing the eye as a conduit to the inner person. 
the eye. You know, what we gaze upon, what we look on with awe and wonder, with excitement and joy, uh, this is a conduit often to explain what's going on inside us. Uh, it's what drives our spirit, our will, our emotions. And I think Jesus is arguing that what we value are treasures which are measured by where and on what we spend our energies indicates where our heart or the center of our passion is. Now, I think Jesus builds on this even further with his use of the word mammon. Uh, if any of you kind of grew up or have been around the King James version of the Bible, you probably heard this word before in this exact verse. Uh, the translators actually just kept it in the original Greek. In most of your Bibles, verse 24, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. Now the word money in the Greek is mammonos. And now the translators of the King James Version, they maybe kept it in the Greek, perhaps because it's, it's a really hard word to translate. Um, and then it's possible on the flip side that for your NIV Bible or ESV, NASB, lots of other translations, just keeping it as money maybe simplifies things, but I actually think it really falls short of what Jesus is trying to convey. Uh, John Tyson, one of my favorite Bible teachers right now who currently leads a church in New York City, uh, he argues that mammon is one of the largest threats to the gospel in America for Christians, period. Now, that's a pretty significant statement from someone that I think has a real good pulse on the church and, and what's happening in our, in our culture. Um, but why is that? Why does he feel so strongly? Listen to this. He, he goes on to describe mammon like this. And this really struck me. Uh, it's a long quote, but I want you to hear it in its fullness. He says this, it's not about money. It's beyond that. It's a vision of independence and luxury that makes us not have to rely on God. It's like a sophisticated independence from God. And it looks different for everybody. For someone in their early 20s, it might be a sort of Instagram aesthetic. If I can get my apartment to look like this, and if I can project this, and if I'm willing to buy the things and act the way and, and dress the ways that make me fit into the collective them, then all will be well. Or it can look like a greed for security. Or for the elite, it plays out in a place where John Tyson is, New York City, where there's this push for the house in the Hamptons, the Bentley, and so on. It's that spirit that walks in and sort of has an arrogant self-dependence. Now, I think this is super fitting for Jesus to start to address this in this way as a follow-up to a teaching about fasting a spiritual discipline that's really supposed to help us remember and practice our dependence upon God. So John goes on to display to explain that mammon can function like this. And again, I think this was just a quote that really struck me. It, it caused me to pause and think, and I think it's, it's good for us to hear. He would say it this way. He says, let's say you were to ask the typical person, what is it that you want for your life? They're gonna say successful, well-adjusted kids that get into good schools, uh, enough money for retirement so I have to uh, concern myself with wealth, a couple great vacations a year where I can enjoy some of the sweet stuff of life, times 30. <laughs> and then if you get a non-Christian and you ask them, what is it that you want for your life? They're gonna say 
successful, well-adjusted kids that get into good schools. I want enough money for retirement. And you know what I'd love for my life is a couple of great vacations a year. Now, I think you can see that this, this concept of mammon is so much bigger than just money. You can't serve both God and this type of a vision for your life. Now, I think this might be a really hard word um, if we, myself included, really take an honest look and think, um, I think that many of us, you know, will start to see and realize that fundamentally our vision for life is no different than who Jesus calls out in this text, the pagans. And I think that sounds really harsh, you know, um, you know, another way that the Bible actually talks about this sort of a framework uh, is labeled as, it's labeled as idolatry. Uh, Bruce Ellis Benson, a former professor of philosophy, describes idolatry in this way, which I think is, is fitting to this. He says, not only are we capable of creating idols and worshiping them, we are likewise capable of being almost or completely blind to their existence. Our recognition of idols for what they are is often selective. Now, I think that's fitting because I think mammon really uh, represents itself as an idol. And it's one that we self-craft, so it looks and can look different from person to person. And really, we may not even know that it's there. Many of you may be even sitting there now, like listening. I, I found myself doing the same thing and prep for this going, whoa, I think these are really powerful words that are striking me. Where in my life am I seeing this and not even recognizing it? It, it reminded me of a, a trip I took to India in 2007, a mission trip. And I'll never forget um, this trip. It was a beautiful country, uh, a life-changing experience. But one of the things that vividly still to this day, uh, 13 years later, that really sticks out to me, that I sort of dwelled upon and reflected upon when I came back from that trip was um, throughout the country, there are beautifully crafted idols, like physical idols that uh, incorporate uh, aspects of humanity and animals and nature. And there'll be one on the corner and it's huge, like you, you can't miss it. <laughs> And I remember sort of thinking, you know, at, back home, like we have idols too, but we just can't see them in the same way. It's almost like there's this thick deception. You know, it's, it's so much more difficult maybe at home, maybe it's more difficult for us to follow Jesus. Maybe it's more difficult for us to, to have faith. Now, a younger version of me was maybe naive to the fact that they still in India are gonna wrestle with these same mammon type idols. But I think there is something to be said about the seductiveness that's going on here. As uh, that quote before said, quote unquote, um, we can almost be blind to their existence. Uh, Tim Keller says this about idolatry. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. An idol is anything more important to you than God. So to sum up so far, storing up treasures isn't bad, 
prioritizing it as first is. And I think it's with all of this in mind that Jesus now transitions to worry. And I think it's really purposeful that even as a, a community, a church community, we put these texts together to look at today. Because I think Jesus is going to talk about here worry in light of this vision that we just, that he just sort of critiqued, right? Uh, the therefore in verse 25 strongly links this vision to the warning on worry. And I think it's important for us to see that because it's gonna help us understand what Jesus then goes on to say. So let's look uh, closely at what Jesus says we shouldn't worry about. He says, don't worry about what shall we eat or don't say to yourselves, you know, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Um, and notice the worry expressed here, it's not, this is an important nuance. It's not whether we shall eat. It's not whether we shall drink whether we shall be clothed. It's a concern of what? Uh, I think that's really important to point out because Jesus isn't condemning all worry. It's easy to read this passage and come away with that conclusion. Or you may have even sat under a teaching of this scripture uh, where that was the conclusion that was drawn um, and felt like all of your worries were condemned. The word worry in the Greek here is Mariam nao, and sometimes it expresses an appropriate feeling of worry, intense concern, or care for something or someone. And we see it used throughout the New Testament to show appropriate concern for the welfare of others or eternal things. And so I think it's important to mention that worry or concern is appropriate when it's directed toward the right things. And worry is inappropriate or wrong when it's misdirected, um, when it's in the wrong proportion, or when it indicates a lack of trust in God. Now, just like a, a pause and a, a real pastoral word, you know, some of you might be saying, look, I lost my job, unemployment's running out, the savings account is empty. You know, the economic impact of COVID-19, it's, it's real. Uh, here's a recent quote from a national news source. Uh, 30 million people are collecting unemployment. 30 million people. Consumer spending is down 8% from January, and the number of open small businesses has fallen 18%. The unemployment rate remains higher than at any time during the Great Recession. That's uh, uh, the mortgage collapse of sort of 07, 08, 09. And I just heard recently the other day that in New York City, the unemployment rate is lower than at any time uh, since the Great Depression. So this is, is life as we know it. Uh, and for many, that sort of might even be your current reality. But what I want you to know right now is that God sees you, God wants to meet your needs, just as he does and says in this passage for the birds and for the flowers. In fact, God already knows what your needs are. And if you have worries of this nature, worries about whether you're going to eat or whether you're going to drink or whether you will be clothed, those are not wrong and those are not what Jesus is critiquing in this passage. And really part of the role of the church is that through the power of Christ and his community, these types of needs are met. Uh, Paul uses actually this same Greek word uh, for worry, Mariam nao, when calling the church in Corinth to meet the needs of their local body. Check this out, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 through 26. Uh, it says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, 
that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care, or that word for, for worry, Miriam Nao, that, that they would have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all are honored together. So I just want to say that to you, if, if that's you, God sees you, God cares, and we as a church family care, please reach out to us, reach out to your community, and, and just know that God wants to meet your needs. But I think for some of us, maybe even most of us, I think the worry is more focused on the what. Uh, and again, totally myself included. Um, I think we think about things, it's, it's easy to classify this this way, right? Like, what are we gonna eat? A nice steak or an organic fresh caught salmon with vegan ricotta? Should we drink wine or beer? You know, would you prefer a Pinot Noir or an IPA? What will I wear, Nike or Adidas? You know, I think it can take those extremes and I think in some of those instances, it can build up worry in us. Um, I think in other ways, it's, it's not worried about that sort of stuff. I think it's more subtle, but related to that vision of life. Um, maybe it's being consumed with what other people think about you. Uh, as John Tyson mentioned earlier, maybe it's that striving to fit into the collective them that creates in you a worry-filled, stressful life to attain that. Um, maybe it's doing whatever it takes to achieve a job that you feel will give you greater prestige and recognition and the sleepless and stressful nights all along the way. I think Jesus is suggesting to us in this passage that that type of worry actually places faith in a false vision for life rather than trusting in a good God who cares for you as he does all creation. And to that, his response is simple. In verse 33, he says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. And so what's our response? Sort of the classic question, what do we do with this? So again, I wanna give maybe one more just sort of pastoral word um, to sort of tie this up and wrap this up. Now, this, if any, hopefully any good Bible teacher recognizes that when uh, given the honor to teach the scriptures, um, that we are also being taught too. <laughs> and so now I've had, you could call it a luxury, but you know, I wrote this message over four weeks ago, just before going out on vacation to sort of make sure loose ends were tied up. And in, I think a really healthy way, I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, it, it really consume my thinking to really go to Jesus and say, Jesus, where is my vision off? Where are there things that I'm chasing after in my life? Where are there instances or moments that I'm putting something else first? Because even this idea of seek first, this isn't something you check the box on once a day. You know, it's something that we have to do constantly throughout the day. The world is clamoring for our attention. Um, I, I thought of it this way and just chatting with my wife, Lori, about it last night. You know, the world creates all this noise, but I said to her, I'm like, it's almost not like it's a noise. That'd be a distraction and something that might bother you. It's almost more of an applause. It's something that welcomes you in. And so to pull away from it and to go towards Jesus's vision is a hard thing. 
But I think this, you know, the scriptures are all about getting the right things in the right order. Uh, look at the, the first commandment of the 10 commandments. You shall love, or sorry, you shall have no other gods before me. Or the great Shema from Deuteronomy that Jesus also quotes, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then in today, um, we're commanded not to run after the things the pagans run after, but to seek first the kingdom of God. You see, worship is all about the priorities of our heart. As we approach God, his primary concern is the devotion, excuse me, of our hearts. And so it's easy to have something take over our hearts and make its way into first place. And I think for a lot of us without even knowing it, um, you could be involved in community groups. You could go to church regularly. You could give generously. You could serve your city all the while holding on to something in your heart that takes priority or precedence over God and seeking first his kingdom. And that's why God always looks at our hearts first versus our habits. And so on a practical note, here's one way to respond that I've been challenging myself to respond. Um, one simple thing we can do is simplify our lifestyle to focus on the kingdom. Now, the challenge with this is, I think for almost across the board, this is an assessment that nearly is impossible for anyone to make but you. In fact, I had this conversation with my wife last night of even sitting down and going, you know, Laura, check my thinking on this. What, what do you see in my life that takes first place? And she doesn't, she doesn't, I think there's things even within our own hearts that get withheld from even people as close as our spouse. And so what I see the scriptures telling us to do is we need to go to Jesus. I've spent three, four weeks repeatedly going, Jesus, show me, what am I missing? Where am I not putting you first? Um, open up my eyes, and this takes time. I, I would really encourage you that uh, from, from a fellow brother who loves you, if we just turn the TV off today and, and just move on and go, what a great, <laughs> a great Sunday and got another great word from the scriptures. If we don't go and challenge ourselves and, and go to Jesus and ask him to reveal in us what's happening, we're losing, I think, the battle of what's going on. We're in a cultural war right now and we're sliding into, I think, at some points a complacency and just sort of going with the flow. Jesus has a vision that's really very different than uh, you know, the, the American dream. And so I think we need to ask ourselves, you know, are we truly seeking the kingdom first? And then secondly, when we get there and as we process that stuff, what can be really helpful is inviting others in. Maybe it's your spouse, but I think it also is helpful and it's part of what we do as a church is, um, is through vulnerable relationships. And so one real simple system that we've built for that, that we think is, is the model in the scriptures is in community, in smaller groups of people that come together, that talk through and process this stuff. Like that is the church. Uh, you know, Western culture is a seductive environment with many cultural idols, working on our affections and our priorities, changing our habits and shaping our minds. 
Um, and the church is supposed to be a place of counterformative community that confronts idolatry like this and helps us actually transform to be more like Jesus. And so in a couple of weeks, you're gonna have the opportunity. If you're not in a community, we'd love to invite you into that and to join and, and try one out so that on a weekly basis, as we're digging into the scriptures and as things, as Jesus and the Holy Spirit are bringing things to your attention, you can work those things out with others and challenge one another to grow. Um, and so, so you're gonna be invited to do that, you know, in the next few weeks. But, but I think, you know, sort of to wrap up, this hopefully is a challenging word uh, for most of us that I feel like are living sort of under this influence of the American dream. Uh, but what are we to do? Seek first his kingdom, because we can trust in a loving God who not only wants to provide for our most basic needs, but who provides for us salvation into eternity through his son, Jesus. And like a loving father, uh, he wants to see us thrive in a vision for life that is true and not deceptive, that's more fulfilling than anything this world has to offer. He wants to free us from a suffocating worry, which has no bearing on eternity and is really a way of the devil who wants to ensnare us and distract us from him. So my encouragement to you today, wherever you're taking in this message is to seek first his kingdom in every moment of every day. With that, you know, let's, let's transition to the bread and the cup. And hopefully what, what there, there's no more fitting way, I think, to tie this into, let's come to Jesus. In fact, I would even argue if you're in a coffee shop in five years from now watching this on YouTube, you don't need the elements to come to him. If you're at home, grab the bread and the cup and let's remember that Jesus to bring this all about for us, laid down his body, sacrificed his body, covered us with his blood. And so we can rejoice. This is not a downer. This is a joy-filled moment to reflect and say, thank you, Jesus, for the access to you, for your vision of life, which is truly fulfilling. And so we take this and we remember Jesus. Take, eat, remember.